You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Philip Johnston. Philip was a former worker in the Labrie branch in both England and Southborough and currently resides in Nashville. This lecture is entitled, How to Be a Better Lover. Attention in a Distracted World. My name is Philip Johnston. <laughs> and uh, most recently, I was a worker at English Labrie um, at the Manor House in Greta, um, which is the English branch of Labrie Fellowship. I was there from 2016 to 2018 for two and a half years. Um, I was part of the staff there, a lovely group of people from all around the world. We have some Americans and Australian, a guy who grew up in Malta, someone from Indiana, South Africa, England, Holland, and Brazil. <laughs> so lots of people from around the world on that staff, and it was a, a total pleasure to work with them for a number of years. I, while there, unexpectedly, I met a, an American named Kristen, um, and she was from Nashville. And we eventually started a relationship and um, I asked her to marry me in the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, right there behind. And we moved here and got married on April 7 of last year, 2018. And in March of this year, we said hello to um, a little baby. Um, so Crystal works for our church in Nashville. I cobble a career together like so many people in Nashville do, um, out of multiple things. So, yeah, I, I worked at Labrie. I called 2008 to 2018 my Labrie decade. I, I first walked through the door of Southboro Labrie in Massachusetts in 2008. Had a pretty life-changing experience there. And then, yeah, uh, quit Labrie in Greta, working at Labrie in England in 2018. So there's 10 years, and now who knows what the next 10 years are going to hold. So that's a bit about who I am. Um, we've got a lot more people coming in. And, They've missed my context, so that's fine. <laughs> so I want to dive right into our topic this morning because I have a lot of ground that I want to cover. The title of today's workshop is How to Be a Better Lover, Attention in a Distracted World. How many of you in the last year have felt overwhelmed by information? Have any of you felt overwhelmed by information? It's a common experience now, and the way I like to think about it is through the lens of the game of Tetris. How many people have played this game before? Certainly, yeah, maybe not some of you younger folks, but definitely some of you not as younger folks. So the way I like to see it is that humanity has been playing a vast game of Tetris for thousands of years when it comes to information. So as any child of the 1980s knows, 
the goal of Tetris is to take the differently shaped blocks that rain down from the top of the screen and to rotate them and stack them into an orderly configuration. That's, that's the name of the game. So in our game of information Tetris, new blocks of information are constantly being formed as we acquire new knowledge and as we encounter new knowledge. And our task is to take those blocks that are constantly coming down from the top, from the, like the sky of our experience, and place them into our understanding in the best way possible for us. This task was easier for our human ancestors. That's because they lived in environments of information scarcity, most likely. They, uh, the blocks for, in, for them were falling slowly from the sky. It was just a very, you know, they could see them coming and they're, they're just falling very slowly and they can think about it and move it a little and it was easier for them. Um, there was a time for them to attend to each bit of information and do something with it. But we are in a bit of a different place. Um, those were the early rounds of the game. And as all Tetris players know, the game escalates and the blocks start to fall faster from the sky and you have to be really quick. Here in 2019, information is constantly coming at us at lightning speed and from every direction. We have more access to information. We have more opportunities to learn, search, communicate, share, all of these things. More opportunities than any other time in human history. That's just where we are. And the internet, particularly, makes constant claims on our attention um, through our smartphones, all the time. So there's always new information coming at us through this little device. There's so many blocks falling from the sky, and many of us feel, and even if we don't feel it, I think it's the experience of most people, that we are losing the game. The blocks are falling, we are losing control, the music is playing faster, and soon it's going to be game over. That's just our experience with information right now. So when we are conscious that we are losing the game, we feel really bad about it. We feel overwhelmed. We're like, oh, I can't handle all this information. I don't know what to do. But when we are not conscious that we are losing the game, we are distracted. We are always distracted, our minds bouncing around, going from one place to another. We lack focus, we lack intention, we forget what we set out to do, and an interesting phenomenon that increasingly I experience, we wonder why in the world time is moving so fast. Why, why is time moving so fast? So here's a place where you, made it, you might have experienced this. How many of you have sat down on the couch to maybe read a book or write a letter to a friend or something like that, only to emerge from your phone, your computer, or your iPad around an hour later, having checked social media, read a few articles, played a few rounds of a game, posted something on Facebook or Instagram, and maybe even bought something um, that you saw from an advertisement somewhere online. Does anybody know this experience? You, you, you've, and that hour feels like it went so fast. It's gone like that. And you're like, where did it go? I think that's a constant experience for many of us. And you'll find articles about this, lots of books, in every major news source almost every day, talking about some new aspect of this problem. And what they will tell you is uh, distraction is prohibiting pro productivity in the workplace, uh, safety on the road, our ability to process information, 
or how we remember things. They'll like latch on to one of these different problems that we are experiencing. And I think we need to listen to them. But one thing that I haven't heard talked about that much um, in my experience so far is the thing that is most important. And there has been no talk really on how our information overload affects our loving. Our information-saturated atmosphere has a formative aspect on our loving, both the way in which we love and our capacity to love in the first place. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning. And I want to begin our exploration by stating my big idea for the morning, which I've put on your handout. Um, And the big idea is this. The rest of our time will simply be an exploration. Here it is. As our distractibility goes up, our capacity for other-centered love goes down. The more distracted we are, the more our love is turned away from the people and places around us and toward the things that distract us. Our distractions don't simply prevent us from loving God and other people. They actually shape the things we love instead. Our distractions don't simply prevent us from loving God and other people. They actually shape the things that we love instead. I want to explore this idea under three headings this morning. Um, The first one is, what is love? I'm going to sketch a basic definition of love that will help us understand why it's so endangered in our time. Then we're going to talk about love's innovative enemies, number two on your outline. I want to track some cultural and technological developments that affect all these things. And then the third thing is we're going to talk about paying attention to what we're paying attention to. And that will make more sense once we get to that point. Does everybody have a handout? Everybody have one? Thank you for passing those out. So let's begin. I want to talk about what is love. Um... I'm going to start with a bold statement that is on your handout. Love is the guiding force of every person's life. Our love is the fuel for our action, drawing us like a magnet toward what we most desire. I firmly believe this, but I didn't always. I read many books when I was a teenager and a little after high school that told me the opposite. And I even went to a camp for two weeks that drilled into me the opposite. And what they told me was that right living flows from right thinking. Has anybody heard this before? Right living flows from right thinking. Um, If you think the right things, then the right actions will fall into place. Have any of you heard this before? There's a certain truth to it, but it's very, I think it's very misleading. But I, I imbibed this idea. I believed it. I thought it was true. But then I encountered a thorny thing. I realized that I had a brain full of right thinking, but absolutely no desire to live according to what I knew was true. I had a brain full of right thoughts, but I had absolutely no desire to live according to them. Uh, For a while, I didn't know how to deal with this. But then I encountered some books by the American Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith, Um, I highly recommend his book, You Are What You Love, The um, Spiritual Power of Habits. It's available on the table out there. Or you can take this one and then go buy it. Don't steal it. 
Um, I highly recommend his book. But he must have had many students like me where he teaches. Because the burden of his books is this conviction that he has that modern Western people, and specifically Christians, have bought into a view of action and behavior that overestimates thinking and underestimates (coughs) desire and love. We overestimate the power of thinking and we underestimate desire and love. And under these assumptions, we turn Christian, um, Christian, the Christian life into a process of constant information acquisition. Like, if you get more truth, put more truth into your head, then you will be sanctified and you will be in, the, in a good place. Um, but many of us know that it's a bit more complicated than that. Smith's argument continues by saying that the vast majority of our action and behavior is driven, like a car, by all sorts of unconscious and precognitive drivers, things that are before our thinking, our desires. And they are formed in us in all sorts of ways that aren't intellectual. So it's not that you're, you're reading these things and then your desires are being formed. It's what you're doing with your body, the kinds of situations you're putting yourself in and all these things. You're doing all sorts of things that are forming your desire in unconscious ways. And because of the sorts of creatures we are, those desires often win out over our thoughts. Even though we have a brain full of right thinking. Does that make sense? So a simple example to make it more concrete. I know what healthy choices look like when it comes to food and when to eat it. I've been taught these things. I know what it looks like. Uh, So I know cognitively that it is not a good idea at 11 p.m. to go to the refrigerator and eat multiple spoonfuls of ice cream directly from the container with a small spoon. (laughs) Not a big spoon, a small spoon. Uh, I know that this is not good to do. But so often, I love the goal of the pleasure of eating ice cream more than I love the goal of health. I love the goal of the pleasure of eating ice cream more than I love the goal of health. My love for the pleasure of the ice cream draws me toward the refrigerator like a homing beacon, even though I know in my head that it would be best not to go there. And that's how this dynamic works. There are things that we love more than the truth that we know. There are things that we love more than the truth that we know. And this is because as human beings, we are driven more by desire, our guts, we are driven more by desire than by knowledge. We are driven by some picture of what we think counts as goodness. Like, we, I want that. I want that ice cream. And we're drawn toward it. Pleasure. I, I want this thing. Um, and we crave it. And we... we, we feel the things that will bring us happiness and joy, and we, are, we gravitate toward them. And because of the kind of creatures we are, the things that we love form who we are on a very deep level. And that's why Smith called his book, You Are What You Love, because that is the most essential thing about you. An illustration that has helped me the most in this comes from a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And in that book... He suggests that our minds are divided um, into parts, like a small rider on on the back of a very large and powerful elephant. So Haidt says that the rider represents our conscious reasoning, our thinking, 
the little rider on top. But the elephant represents our intuition, or what we're calling our love, the thing that really is moving us somewhere. An elephant, as you see, is really big, incredibly strong, and powerfully smart. An elephant knows how to get where it wants to go, and it will, it will go there with power. And this is why we can fill our rider's head with reams and reams of information, but our elephant ends up taking us somewhere else, because the elephant is very, very powerful and carries us in a different direction so often. And that's how I want to see love. Your love is your elephant, taking you toward what you most desire. And often we have not integrated what we desire with what we think. So the, the, the thinking rider is just on top of the elephant being taken places um, and can wonder, how did I get here? Why am I, why am I at this place? I think that I shouldn't be here. But the desiring elephant is just there because that's what you love. So that's my description of love. Love is the guiding force of every person's life, drawing us like a magnet toward what we most desire. Your love is your elephant. So that's a description of love. But it's not a definition. So I read these books by James K. Smith, and I thought, well, that's a description of love, but I'm looking for a definition. But what word in the English language has more diverse and common uses? It, it's a... It's not a meaningless word, but it's almost. You hear it so much. So a husband looks into his wife's eyes and says, I love you, five minutes after saying, I love this steak at the dinner table. That's just how we use this word. Um, I say I love my wife and my daughter, but I also say I love the pizza from Five Points Pizza in East Nashville and this breakfast sandwich from Sweet Sixteenth Bakery. Has anyone had it? <laughs> Amen. Yes, I, I love that breakfast sandwich. It is so good. We use making love as shorthand for sex. There are so many uses of this common and diverse word. So when I set out to think of a definition, I was like, what is that thing that I am giving when I say I love something? And what is that thing that I'm receiving when I'm receiving love from someone? I use the word, but what is it actually? And so I thought about this and thought about this and kept bringing it up at Labrie lunch tables until I finally landed on a definition that made me happy, or at least currently still satisfies me. Um, and here is my attempt. Love is committed attending. Love is committed attending. So I'm going to go through both of those words, committed. So the old meaning of commit is to join something or to send something along with something else. That's why the old King James in the Psalms says, commit your way to the Lord. Join yourself with him. Send yourself along with him. Commit yourself to him. To commit to something is to pledge or bind yourself to it in some way. And it carries with it a sense of dedication or resolution. I'm going to stick with this thing. I'm going to commit myself to it. Even if that person or thing is difficult, draining, or disappointing, I'm going to commit to this thing. And you do that, you commit to it, whether that thing is a good thing or a bad thing, an evil thing or an honorable thing. You commit yourself to it because you are persuaded in some way that it's a good thing to commit yourself to it. Somehow you've been persuaded that it's good. Not necessarily through your head, but you've been persuaded. So that's committed. So attending, committed attending. 
So when I say that, I mean more uh, than Peter is in attendance at this session this morning. I mean more like, uh, look at how that mother attends to her daughter. Look at how she attends to her. If you were royalty, what would you have all the time? You would have an attendant with you, who is with you at all times, seeing to your needs. Attending is something more than a momentary glance or a short period of attention. It is a, uh, it's an active presence. So the attendant to royalty is an active presence with this, with this princess or with this person. Attention is active presence, the consistent application of energy towards someone or something rather than away from it. So that's my definition, committed, attending. That's what love is. So the question with that definition in mind then is what do you love? Do you want to identify the things that you love? Under this definition, the end, how to do that becomes frighteningly simple. If you want to know what you love, you simply ask yourself, who or what receives the most of my committed attending? My active presence. Where is my active presence most focused? And the answers to that can be unsettling. So I may say, I love reading. Love books, love reading. But if every evening my active presence is more focused on uh, scrolling through Instagram, playing games on my iPad, watching Netflix and those things, clearly I don't love reading as much as I say I do. I don't love it. I think I do, but I don't. Because my committed attending has been focused elsewhere for quite some time. It, I might have loved reading once, but since then something else has persuaded me to attend to it and to love it more. A darker example, you can, I once talked to a man whose spouse cheated on him three times in a short span, and each time the spouse came back saying, You've all, but you're always the one that I've loved the most. Now this, this, spouse, this spouse might actually think that. They might have a thought in their mind, I love my spouse the most. But in their gut, they are persuaded that someone else is better. And their love has moved, their elephant has moved toward that person, even while their rider still thinks, I love my spouse. And that's the way love works. The objects of our committed attending are the objects of our love. So, we've defined love as committed attending, and by doing so, we see that love is intimately connected with attention. And that's the first link I want to make this morning. Love is intimately connected with attention. The things that you give your attention to are the things that you love. Where your attention is, there your love will be also. Where your attention is, there your love will be also. Attention is a valuable resource for each of us. We are always using it unless we are dead or asleep. Uh, we, it, it's, it's the energy for everything in our life. To have, no, to have no attention, like I said, is to be dead. We need our attention, and every meaningful task in our life requires it. And that's how I've come to see attention as the engine and the energy for love. Attention is love's energy. If you don't have any attention, you can't love anything. Because love is committed to attending. 
So if love and attention are this intimately connected, I want to talk in the second part of the talk about love's innovative enemies. And I have a few of them on your sheet. The first um, innovative enemy of love is the attention merchants. Now, an attention merchant, the definition is on your handout, I believe. An attention merchant is someone who offers you something for a low cost or for free in order to harvest your attention and sell it to someone else. Now, the attention merchants are a class of business person whose presence dominates our world. In 2019, they are literally everywhere, present with us during all of our waking moments and most of our sleeping moments as well. They're in your bedroom, maybe. Um, Their goal is to harvest as much of your attention as possible. And each one of us has interacted with many attention merchants today already, probably hundreds of them. They're present with us in this room, their presence suffusing the atmosphere, even though we cannot see them. That's just how they work. They have ways of getting to us that we've completely complied with and that we've said yes to. And they're here right now. Our attention is a resource for us. But to the attention merchant, our attention is a commodity. Our attention is a resource for us, but to them, it's a commodity. They want it. They want to grab it from us. And the business of the attention merchant is to harvest your attention and convert it into money for someone else. So let me describe to you a bit how this works. And I'm going to do so by telling you about the first attention merchant. Um, Does anybody know this man? Not personally, but... uh, (laughs) This is the first attention merchant. His name was Benjamin Day, and he was a newspaper man in New York City in 1833. He wasn't really interested in publishing the news. That was not his goal. He just wanted to make money. So he decided that he would sell his newspaper, The Sun, which you see over there. He decided that he would sell it for less than it cost to produce and that he would make his money selling page space to advertisers. He was the first one to think about this. His cheap newspaper reeled readers in with juicy stories, uh, and often entirely false ones, about grisly suicides, murders, and sexual escapades. People would see it and they'd be like, oh man, free paper, I'll read this. And it it was chock full of advertisements. And so readers would see these ads, their desire for the things that they saw in the newspaper would be piqued, and then they would open their wallets to the advertisers. It, uh, it looked like Benjamin Day was selling newspapers, but the whole thing was an effort in misdirection. It looked like he was selling newspapers, but actually he was selling his readers to advertisers. Selling his readers to advertisers. The newspaper was not... Benjamin Day's main product. What was his main product? His readers. The attention of his readers. That's what he was selling. And the whole success of his newspaper was in how he could misdirect his readers into thinking that they were actually getting a paper. So you might have caught on by now that uh, by attention merchant I just mean advertiser. Um, And there's an amazing book that you can read called The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu that is a really entertaining and illuminating history of the ad industry through this lens. Um, Benjamin Day, his brilliant decision was the dawn of advertising and the world has never been the same since then. So the, the MO of the attention merchant is, the best word is lurk. 
the attention merchant wants to lurk. And as Tim Wu says, they want to seek out time and spaces previously walled off from commercial exploitation in order to gather up chunks and slivers of your unharvested awareness. That's what they want to do. Go into the spaces that haven't been colonized before and to gather up your attention. And a lot has happened to that lurking since the 1850s. You can see in Benjamin Day's newspaper, it was all text-based. People hadn't thought of images yet for advertising. So it was all text-based. But a lot has changed since then. Advertising came into maturity in the 20th century. People were buying things they saw in Benjamin Day's newspaper, but eventually they bought them and then they didn't need them anymore. And so the intention merchants decided, we have to change things. We have to change America, and increasingly the whole West, from a um, needs economy to a wants economy. We have to make this change. And this was accomplished by shifting the content of advertising away from words and descriptions of how nifty products were into incorporating a desire component. And that's how advertising changed and morphed in the 20th century. Um, There needed to be a desire component, a way of awakening and implanting desire in readers. And once you could key into that desire, behaviors and attitudes could be powerfully shaped. In other words, you need to talk, advertising, the best advertising talks to the elephant and not to the rider. It engages the elephant with images and with um, things that will make the elephant move, that will move the elephant, not just information. That's the way it works. Advertising is not about products. It's never about products right now. In the fancier words of a great ad man, Don Draper, Madman, um, he says, advertising is based on one thing, happiness. And do you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing is okay. You are okay. See how that just engages your guts more than your mind? And that is, the, that is the role of the advertiser. It's not about information. It is about persuasion. It's all about persuasion. Now, even toward the end of the 20th century, it was still difficult to measure just how effective this persuasion was. But then came the Internet. Then came the internet, and suddenly the attention merchants had new forms of analysis, experimentation, message delivery, customization, automation, all these things. People were spending more time surfing the web on personal computers where all these things could happen. And so they were coming into new information about people. And suddenly, and without many people realizing it, the sophisticated persuasion of the attention merchants came into contact with the sophisticated technology of Silicon Valley. And they came into new and unprecedented ways of harvesting attention and for turning the cash crop of attention into an industrial commodity. That's what's happened with the Internet. So that is enemy number one, the attention merchants. And they exist all through these other enemies. But um, the second enemy is the attention economy. B, to B. We are now living in what social theorists call the attention economy. And this is love's second innovative enemy. 
To understand what this means, I want you to listen to the economist Herbert Simon from 1971 and really a prophetic statement. Um, this is on your handout. Simon says, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> in an information-rich world, the wealth of information means a death of something else. A scarcity of whatever it is that information consumes. What information consumes is rather obvious. It consumes the attention of its recipients. Hence, a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention and a need to allocate that attention efficiently among the overabundance of information sources that might consume it. Kind of technical, a bit of a boring writer, but he but it's a it's an important concept. A wealth of information leads to a shortage of attention. There is more information available to us than any other people in human history, so the stakes are even higher for the attention merchants, and there's a constant race to get our attention in every sphere, especially on the internet, where most of us spend a large portion of our attention and of our lives. The attention economy came into being with the introduction of a device designed to soak up human attention wherever it can be found, uh, whether that be in the car, in the bathroom, or in bed. And that is the smartphone. That's when the attention economy came into being. And this is a device that is optimally suited for attention harvesting. And there's a whole industry based on getting ways to harvest your attention through this. I want to show you just two minutes of a video that shows a bit of how this works. Um, here we go. I think we're living in about two billion Pruner shows. Where, you know, Pruner show, you wake up and everything is sort of coordinated just for you and you don't even realize it. But it's coordinating just to entertain you or just to engage you. That's Tristan Harris. He worked as Google's design analysis. And now he runs a nonprofit initiative called Time Well Spent, advocating for awareness of how tech companies profit off of users' attention. It's not, it's not designed to help us, it's designed to keep us up. So I handed him my phone yeah. and asked him how he'd fix it. It starts with turning off all notifications, except for when a real human is trying to reach you. When you get a call, a text, or a message, it's usually because another person wants to communicate with you. But a lot of today's apps have a feeling of that kind of social interaction to get you to spend more time on their platform. If Facebook sends you a push notification that a friend is interested in an event near you, they're essentially acting like a puppet master, leveraging your desire for social connections so that you use the app more. But notifications didn't always work like this. When push notifications were first introduced for email on Blackberries in 2003, they were actually seen as a way for you to check your phone less. You could easily see emails as they came in, so you didn't have to repeatedly open your phone to refresh an inbox. But today you can get notifications from any app on your phone. So every time you check it, you get this grab bag of notifications that can make you feel a broad variety of emotions. If it wasn't random, if it was predictably bad or predictably good, then you would not get addicted. The predictability would take out the addictiveness. That's the same logic behind slot machines. And it's effective. More money in the U.S. than baseball, movies, and theme parks combined. And they become addicting about three to four times faster than other kinds of gambling. Some apps even replicate the process of pulling a slot machine lever with the pull refresh feature. That's a conscious design choice. Those apps are usually capable of continuously updating content 
but the pull action provides an addicting illusion of control over that process. In the future, we might see healthier ways of delivering notifications. Research shows that bundling notifications, where phones deliver a batch of updates at set times, reduces user stress. That's just a, one example. But these things that end up distracting us and getting our attention are not unintentional. They are, uh, they are active design choices, and it's called persuasive design. A guy named Adam Alter has written a book called, ooh, um, he wrote a book about this. Um, so the smartphone is designed to harvest your attention and to constantly monitor, track, and measure your activity and engineer what you see on your screen to produce maximum persuasion of you. That's just what it's designed to do. So that brings me to enemy, love enemy number three which is algorithmic behavior modification, which might sound like a daunting concept, but let me explain it to you. Um, Algorithmic behavior modification is the primary way that the attention merchants persuade us here in the attention economy. And it's fairly new within the last uh, eight, six, seven, eight years. So what's an algorithm? I'm not a computer scientist, but it is simply a set of rules that a computer follows in order to reach a desired goal. It's a, it's a process, a computerized process. It reads data statistics, and then it responds to them in the way it's been told to do. So what does an algorithm do with your attention? Algorithms gorge on data about you, given through your phone and your interactions on your phone. Um, and it, it, the algorithms are designed to ask questions like, what kind of links do you click on? What videos do you watch? Which ones do you only watch some of? Which ones do you watch all the way through? Who did that video come from? Who posted it? What are those people watching um, who posted the video? Maybe you'd like to watch more of their stuff if it were put in front of you. All of these questions. How, um, who are you connecting with in person online? If you have a camera, what is your facial expression when you interact with them? How does your skin, cho- skin tone change in various situations when, you're being, um, when, when video is being taken of you? What were you doing just before or after you decided to buy something on Amazon? What was your action there? So the algorithms don't understand who you are on a deep level, but the data tends to work. It really works. Through what you write, anything you type on Facebook and Google, even if you delete it, is put into the algorithm. Um, Through what you write, watch, click, and buy, the attention merchant's algorithm make a guess about what emotion you're feeling. Are you sad? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you anxious? That's what the algorithms have been trained to do. Um, And then they hit you with the kind of content that will continue to absorb more of your attention with the preferred end of getting you to buy things. That is the preferred end, um, either online or in person, getting you to go places. Through this technology, the attention merchant are able to seize the moment when you are perfectly primed and then influence you, persuade you with messages that have worked on people who fit your profile. They align you up with people who fit your profile and then they they hit you with those things in order to persuade you. So the fact that our social media and our phones distract us is not an accident. It is the result of thousands of hours and millions of dollars of careful psychological research and intentional design choices. Why are your notifications read on your phone? 
Because red makes you feel anxious and like something is, something is about to happen. You cannot be on your phone, and especially not on social media, without your attention being vied for by the attention merchants in an invisible process of attention gathering. And they've done their research to ensure that they will grab as much of it as they can with the right colors, the right sounds, the right images, and other persuasive tools. And this has led to a whole new economic order of things because of how powerful this process is. And it's an economic order that is our final enemy, um, love's final enemy, and it is surveillance capitalism, which is a book written by a woman with fantastic hair (laughs) named Shoshana Zuboff. And the hair just fits that name like a shot. My daughter does not like this book. Um, but her father did. <laughs> okay, I want to I explain this to you. So if we, we just talked about three, um, three enemies. So one was the attention merchants. Two was algorithmic behavior modification. Oh, no, sorry. Two was the attention economy. Three was algorithmic behavior modification. All of these go within surveillance capitalism. They're happening inside of it. So the way Zuboff describes surveillance capitalism, don't be, um, don't be shy away from that, those big words. They're really important. She defines it as, on your sheet, a new economic order that claims human experience as free raw material for hidden commercial practices of extraction, prediction, and sales. Um, She calls it a parasitic economic logic in which the production of goods and services is subordinated to a new global architecture of behavior modification. So, industrial capitalism of the 20th century claimed nature, and it harvested it and made supply chains that then took into factories to produce products that would be sold. Does that make sense? It took the trees, it sent them through factories and made things about them. The trees in surveillance capitalism are your private human experience. Your human experience. And that is claimed, harvested, much like the deforestation. It's harvested through these devices, through your smartphone, through any device really that is labeled smart. (coughs) Anything labeled smart is engaged in an effort of misdirection. The misdirection is to point you away from what it actually does. What you think it does is give you something. And that's what the attention merchant has always wanted you to believe. I'm giving you something for free. But really, it's claiming something from you. And surveillance capitalism claims your private human experience, puts it through a factory that's called artificial intelligence and machine learning, and then it creates products. Those products are predictions. They're prediction products. Predictions of your behavior, what you will do now, soon, or later. And it sells those prediction products, which are extremely accurate, to people who want them, advertisers, so that large companies can influence you with the power that they have through technology and through your devices. It's a very complex thing, but once you think about it, it it makes a lot of sense. So the utterly strange thing is that though there are thousands of advertisers that would like to persuade you, there are really only two companies that control the algorithms and they have the best knowledge and the best data. 
um, two giant attention merchants, two surveillance capitalists extraordinaire who are dedicated to keeping you engaged. That's their misdirection. We're engaging you and helping you engage with other people. Um, what they're really doing is harvesting you. Um, and those companies are... Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's how, that's how she feels. Um, those companies are Facebook and Google. These two companies comprise 85% of advertising growth from year to year in the world. And the numbers are growing. And they have the scientifically proven ability to shape what billions of people desire and love. And increasingly how they behave. So remember the attention merchant, he offers you something for a low cost or for free, and then to harvest your attention, sell it to someone else. So let's start with Google. Um, what does Google offer you? What are the offers that you're getting from Google? Info access to information. Um, so you search for things, they know what you're searching for, and they're able to harvest what you are looking for at any point in your life. Whether, yeah, so they know that information. Uh, what else do they give you? Consolidated workspace. Consolidated so all the activities of so many businesses that use G Suite as a hub for their activity. Um, that the offer is consolidated businesses. Yeah. Uh, Connection to others through email. But email. So they offer you a free email service, which is amazing. All your information in your private correspondence used to funnel through the factory, the AI factory, to produce predictions about your behavior. What else do they offer you? Directions on where to get everywhere. Directions on where to get everywhere, <laughs> which, which constantly maps your, lo your location, where you go, what, how, do, how do you run your errands, where do you usually go first? And it's why you, you constantly see things that you would like popping up on Google Maps that aren't popping up on your grandma's Google Maps. So it's catered to you. So that's how, that's how it works. And the result is that, with, this is what Zuboff says in her book. She says, without permission and without compensation and with little in the way of resistance, Google seized and declared ownership over everyone's information offered to the company through people's attention. It turns the details of the lives of millions and billions of people into its own property, which it then uses to shape people's behavior. So you remember Pokemon Go a few summers ago? This was a Google-run operation. Um, and it was a test for Google, Google City, which is currently the first one I think will be on Vancouver's waterfront or something like that. So Pokemon Go, you know, you follow the little creatures and you're following them places. That was engineered in order to get guaranteed commercial outcomes from people. Because the creatures would lead you into places where you would buy things that you want. And that's why it's leading different people into different sorts of places. And that is a practice for the Google City, which will continually guide people, tune them, and herd them toward the locations where they will spend the most money. That's just how this works. And it's, it's, the, it's the way this new economy works. So, James Williams... <laughs> If you want to know about this stuff, I can't recommend highly enough this book by James Williams called Stand Out of, Our Li Stand Out of Your Life. Surveillance capitalism is like this big, but this book is this big. Um, he, he is a, formal Google, a former Google employee, and he now uses his insider knowledge uh, to write critically about the attention economy. And in this book, Stand Out of Our Light, 
he offers an axiom that I think really helps us to understand how technology works right now within surveillance capitalism. And it's very simple. It's on your page. He says, there's a deep misalignment between the goals we have for ourselves and the goals our technology has for us. This is worth writing on the door frames of your house. Um, there is a deep misalignment between the goals um, between the goals we have for ourselves and the goals our technologies have for us. Google has goals for you. They're called guaranteed commercial outcomes. Um, and they're far different from the goals you have for yourself and your use of their products. This is how surveillance capitalism works. Google started this, but it was perfected by Facebook, who has gone even further. And by Facebook, I mean Instagram and WhatsApp because they're owned by Facebook. Um, what does Facebook offer for free? What does Facebook offer for free? And Instagram and WhatsApp? Pictures. Pictures of people you love. Attention. Attention from people you love and some you don't. Connection, Connection to community. Yeah. yeah. Recommendations of new people you might want to... Recommendations of new people in your area who might just have your same interests. How did they find out about that? Um, Pictures pop up that may be you. <laughs> facial, facial recognition. Yeah. Yeah? Marketing. It offers you marketing. You can do it, and you can have Facebook do it for you. You can hire them to do that. Um, so one, I've been constantly talking about this misdirection thing. Facebook comes to you like any great attention merchant, and they say, you want connection, ways to market your, market your product, and all these things. You want to receive love from the people around you, and affirmation. I will give them to you for free. Um, and we think that we are in control of what we... Uh, we think that we're in control of this because we decide what we post and what we share, and we think we're in control of the situation. And that's just what the attention merchant has always wanted you to think. I'm giving you a free newspaper. How great am I? For Facebook, it is, we are connecting the world and making it, making it easier for people to communicate. That's the misdirection. They are a surveillance advertising company. There's a deep misalignment between the goals we have for ourselves and the goals our technology has for us. Your goal for Facebook, connect with people you love. Facebook's goal for you, keep you on Facebook for as long as possible so that you provide them with free raw material that they can use to shape your behavior toward guaranteed commercial outcomes. The more of your waking moments Facebook consumes, the more accurately they are able to do this. And according to Zuboff in her book, oh, well, yeah, I love this picture. That's Mark Zuckerberg's cover. <laughs> testing out new cool products um, on people. <laughs> um, so, Facebook's goal for you. What is the main problem Facebook is trying to solve? And Zuboff answers. How and when to intervene in the state of play that is your daily life in order to modify your behavior and thus sharply increase the predictability of your actions now, soon, and later. 
So the company conducts all sorts of research in order to find this out. So an internal report released, uh, leaked in 2017 revealed that the company can identify when teenagers, a specific demographic, feel insecure, worthless, and in need of a confidence boost. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I guess the answer is pretty easy. Um, but, these, but, but there are moments when they feel these things more than others. Which might be when um, on a Friday evening when they don't have um, someone to go out with, um, or some situation like that, or when they have um, gone off by themselves, leaving a group of friends, which might be at a particular time at night. And the company can exploit these vulnerabilities to keep people hooked um, through doing things like. Uh, Controlling when people receive their likes. So the likes that you receive from social media aren't given to you right when you get them. They're given to you at the time when the algorithm thinks that they will um, get the most of your attention. It used to be different. But then this economic logic of surveillance capitalism took over. Um, so it, they track when people are vulnerable, in need of approval, or maybe just bored. And then they sell these predictions to the highest bidder. And this process is completely invisible to us. That's, how, that's why it's so insidious. It's, it's completely invisible. If you want to find out how you've been persuaded, you can't. It's a bit like, how do you find out how you got cancer? Is it the chemical factory down the road? Is it something you ate? Is it mold in your house? You don't know. But somehow the environment that you entered into gave you cancer. And you don't know where it came from. Um, we think that these things are products that we use, a bit like a book that I pull off the shelf. I'm going to go on Instagram now, and I'm going to spend time on it. But it's more like an environment that we walk into. It's, it's an atmosphere that has been curated just for us. And the goal is to create a climate of desire for you. A climate of desire that feels entirely normal and comfortable, comfortable to you. In this climate are the people I know. In this climate are the people I love. Posting things that I'm interested in. I am, comfort I am comfortable here. Um, and as you dwell in the climate and you breathe in its air, you begin to crave certain experiences and want certain things. Those things have been predetermined by the algorithms as things they think you want, would want and desire. They've been primed for you. Um, and they've mastered the art of channeling your committed attending toward those things and experiences resulting in great monetary gain. That's just how this, this works. And this, this is not a conspiracy theory. She teaches at Harvard. <laughs> um, yeah, and has a great hairstylist. Um, so that, that is love's, love's innovative enemies. And I, I want to wrap this up by posing, um, by talking about paying attention to what we're paying attention to. That's a line from a Christian psychologist named Kurt Thompson who wrote a great book called Anatomy of the Soul. I want to sum up everything I've said. At the beginning of our time, we stated that as our distractibility goes up, the quality of our love for one another goes down. The more distracted we are, the more our love is 
taken away, our committed, our committed attention is turned away from God and from the people around us and toward the things that distract us. Any claim made on your attention is a claim made on your capacity to love. Where your attention is, there your love will be also. Here in the attention economy, love's innovative enemies are keenly aware of our psychological and emotional needs. It's their business. They know what to offer us to keep us engaged, and we accept the offer. They harvest our attention via our digital and smart devices. Here's the, here's the payoff. If love is committed attending, they are drawing out love from us. They're drawing out love from us and forming us to love them more than the people and places around us. They're forming us as lovers of them, people who give committed attending. So I want to leave you this morning with a bit of a call to arms, and it's to pay attention to what you're paying attention to. And I want to uh, talk about this from two brief directions. Um, Particularly how what we pay attention to is shaping both the quantity and the quality of our love for God and other people. So first I want to talk about quantity. In this great book called Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport, uh, available on the table, uh, he tells us to take note of the misalignment between our goals and the goals our technology has for us. Um, And he asked his blog readers if they wanted to find some digital sanity, and he uh, asked them if they'd like to join him on a process called the digital declutter, not the digital um, uh, detox, but a digital declutter. And so he asked them if they would do this. He said, put aside a 30-day period during which you will take a break from optional technologies in your life. During this 30-day break, explore and rediscover activities and behaviors that you find satisfying and meaningful. At the end of the break, reintroduce optional technologies into your life, starting from a blank slate. For each technology you reintroduce, determine what value it serves in your life and how specifically you will use it so as to maximize this value. It's very simple. (laughs) Um, And he, he suggests that you do this. And he thought that this would be very taxing on people, and he thought he might get 10 participants, but he got 1,200 of his blog readers to join in. And a thing that he noticed in the reports uh, that came back to him were how much time online had crowded out activities for his people, for his blog readers, like um, joining a church committee or a running club. I don't have time to do that, people said before the declutter. And then they realized, oh, wait, I do. Um, They'd failed to realize the extent to which the internet had pushed what he called analog social media um, out of their life. Um, And what they regained was time to cook food and to see close friends. I believe that many of us don't realize, and, and in a way it's not our fault because of the invisible way surveillance capitalism works. Many of us don't know the extent to which digital clutter has invaded our lives, be that from social media, podcasts, Netflix, all these things. Do you know what Netflix CEO says their number one competitor is? Sleep. If you, if you want more sleep, you might decide, I've got to get rid of Netflix, and then they'll lose money from you. Their number one competitor is sleep. <laughs> um, and that reshapes your life. 
And it's certainly one of the reasons why we say we're too busy. And that's because our capacity to love, our capacity for committed attending, is being zapped by our lack of paying attention to what we're paying attention to. Another thing is that we live in a time where many Christians are burning out on their faith. You've probably realized this. Um, And there's a feeling that they just can't do this life of faith thing anymore. And there are a variety of reasons for this. But I'm convinced that one of them that we haven't yet adequately learned to talk about is how information overload and distraction is zapping the very energy that we need to live a life of faith toward God. It's zapping the energy to, to, to pray. It's zapping the energy to engage our neighbor in love, to engage God through scripture and church. So that is the quantity of our love. We're not able to show committed attending because of a variety of these things. But then there's the quality of our love, and this is where I want to land us today. So there was an article in The Atlantic last July called The Dangers of Distracted Parenting. It was by a mother of three called Erica, named Erica Christakis. And she talks about how you know, everyone's talking about too much screen time for kids and uh, how much is too much. And she said, well, I think that's important, but we need to look at another problem. She said that in the 1960s, the quantity of time that mothers spent with their children was higher. But now, there's a lot of quantity, but the quality has gone down because of the, the smartphone and digital distraction. And she says, she cribs a term from a guy named Nicholas Carr in a book about the internet called The Shallows, and says that parenting today is characterized by continuous partial attention. Continuous partial, partial attention. And then she says this. It's a long quote, but it summarizes so much of what I want us to be thinking about together. Smartphone use, she says, has been associated with a familiar sign of addiction. Distracted adults grow irritable when their phone use is interrupted. They not only miss emotional cues, but they actually misread them. A tuned-out parent may be quicker to anger than an engaged one, assuming that a child is trying to be manipulative, when in reality she just wants attention. Short, deliberate separations can, of course, be harmless, even healthy, for a parent and child alike. But that sort of separation is different from the inattention that occurs when a parent is with a child, but communicating through his or her non-engagement that the child is less valuable than an email. A mother telling kids to go out and play. A father saying he needs to concentrate on a chore for the next half hour. These are entirely reasonable responses to the conflicting demands of adult life. What's going on today, however, she says, is the rise of unpredictable care governed by the beeps and enticements of smartphones. We seem to have stumbled onto the worst model of parenting imaginable, always present physically, thereby blocking children's autonomy, yet only fitfully present emotionally. That is an article called The Danger of Distracted Parenting from The Atlantic. Let's hear that last line again. Always present physically, yet only fitfully present emotionally. What is this other than a deep deficiency of love? It is the very opposite of committed attending. 
I want to leave us there, and we can talk. But I want to first answer a question that I had that I didn't have an answer to for a long time. When we talk about attention, we talk about paying attention. And that language is financial. It's, it's money. We're paying something. We are handing something over. What are we paying when we pay attention? <coughs> James Williams, in this uh, great book, Stand Out of Our Light, answered the question for me. And he says, What do you pay when you pay attention? You pay with all the things you could have attended to, but didn't. All the goals you didn't pursue, all the actions you didn't take, and all the possible use you could have been, had you attended to those other things. Attention is paid in possible futures foregone. We pay attention with the lives we might have lived. Where was that quote from? This book, Stand Out of Our Life. Attention is paid in possible futures foregone. Isn't that an amazing line? Um, yeah, let's talk for a few minutes. Um, we have ten minutes, sorry. Um, this is a shorter shorter session, though. I wonder if I might carry this around. To catch yeah, you could. Yeah. Yeah, you found just by knowing this that you actually um, it, you're less aware. You're actually aware of what you're of what the people are trying to do. It's actually a bit healthier for you. Yeah, um, it, it has very much helped me. I I first started to realize in college when I had a lot of free time how much the the infinite scroll was um, taking my attention, and I began to think, why is this happening? But now I've found out. Like, the infinite scroll is a very intentional design choice. And it's designed to, like that video said, unpredictable. Like, you, you don't know what you're going to get. It's like pulling the, pulling the slot machine. But the, the hard thing is that um, ga- gamblers, if you talk to them, they know that the slot machine is a fruitless endeavor. <laughs> and they, some of them. And they can tell you that. Um, but it's just so enticing. And it's the rider elephant thing. So I have found that I've tried to um, not use some of these things. I'm still enmeshed in Google um, through email and maps. Mm -hmm. And they they do make it hard to not be enmeshed. But I I did realize how a lot of these things were shaping my my desire for things and the the vision of who I wanted or thought I should be. Um, And when when the penny dropped for me, that they were trying to move me toward guaranteed commercial outcomes, and that they were. I was just like, I, I, I don't want this. And the thing is, nobody wants it. When, when, people, when you hear about this, you don't say, ah, surveillance capitalism, I want more of that in my life. You, you don't say that. But because it is an effort in creative misdirection, you do want it in your life. Um, and it's just, it is like what Newport says, it says in that declutter, it's, what are the goals you have for yourself? Who, who are the people you want to love? And that, that is what I need to meditate on more. Um, but what's tricky, and this is the final thing I'll say, that what Facebook does is they've created a highway system. It, it's, like a, it's like an interstate. 
it gets you to places quickly. Um, it gets you to connections quickly. And if you're going to go off the interstate, you're going to go on back roads. You won't get there as fast. You might not see as much going directly through big cities. But you will see things you wouldn't otherwise see traveling on the back roads. So I've been, I've been trying to travel on the back roads and see what I can see. And that's been a bit... Uh, that I think my life... I'm less anxious and my life has been a bit enriched. So, yeah. As, as background, I have a doctorate in consumer behavior, so I am like the uber attention merchant that you <laughs> described. Yep. Yeah. And one of the things I continually hear from people is like, how can you be a Christian and be in marketing? It's, it's like this assumption that, you know, Dick was talking about there are illegitimate occupations like yeah. prostitution and drug dealership and it's kind of like selling stuff yeah. is also you know I've seen this a lot in the Christian community and it drives me crazy because we're assuming first of all that profit motive selling stuff is bad yeah. because I mean we have an obligation to sell stuff yeah. we you know get people to buy things you have legitimate needs in your life and um so you know, so there are those things that are going on, and the people who work for us get paid. Yeah. Theoretically, your quality of life is better if you're finding stuff that meets your needs. Yeah. And yet, unfortunately, so many people use Don Draper as the example of what advertising and marketing is. Yeah. And Christians run away from that, and our obligation as Christians is to be in the world. Yeah. And why do we expect the world to make good decisions if no Christians are in the world influencing the content on the internet and influencing those kind of things. You know, and so it just gets really frustrating is that we vilify this occupation and this thing. I think our obligation as Christians is exactly what you said, to pay attention to what we pay attention to. And just like any other part of the world influencing us, this is a part of the world that Christ calls us to be in and be aware of and our online behaviors are so important but but not to blame the online behaviors or blame the advertisers you know it's like okay to be aware and to be cognizant of how it's impacting us and how it's impacting what God wants of us but also God calls us to serve people in the marketplace and as a Christian, if you're in the marketplace, you can serve them legitimately as opposed to some of the stuff that we see because there aren't people being salt and light in these conversations. Who aren't anti-technology. They, they love technology and see its great potential. They're mainly concerned about how it's currently working. So they're not against advertising. They're against stealing private human experience in order to behavior in a way that's unprecedented in human history. So one group of people that do this, I put this the first thing on the further exploration thing. It's called the um, let me see here. It's called the Center for Humane Technology. Um, I think I can get in here. Um, yeah, they're called the Center for Humane... Well, I can't get on it, but you can go to their website. And they're, they're people who have worked for Google and Facebook who are now... What they've realized is that when you go into these companies and you 
give a talk like I, the information I just gave, or they read someone like Shoshana Zuboff, they're like, this is not what we are trying to do. We don't sit in our desks and, and write lines of code thinking, ah, I'm modifying people's behavior. But that is actually what's happening. And so it's a, it's a bit of a paradigm shift that many of these designers have had now. And they're like, wait, this is bad, the way we're doing it. And so we need to advocate for change. And so the Center for Humane Technology produces resources for people in the industry to say, okay, think more humanly about people and um, do your work, but just not in such a bad way. <laughs> um, and so I I'm really hopeful for that because they're not, they're not anti-technology. They are pro-human. And the way they talk about it is the current model we have with surveillance capitalism, they use the word human downgrading. So we're upgrading technology, but we're downgrading humans. We're making us more... So like, if you use a word on Twitter that is inflammatory, like, I'm going to crush him, or he is absurd, or uh, some, some word, most people use them to refer to our president. Um, <laughs> your click rate and like rate goes up 17%. So it's more successful for you if you act more inhumanely, if you act more angry. And what they're finding is that these behaviors, because profit maximization is the, is the motive and surveillance capitalism is the resource, people, it's more successful to always tilt people a bit toward crazy in order to get them to engage more. And these are the type of conversations that happen. We need to tip, figure out how to tip people more toward health and not toward um, inflammatory behavior and stuff. I, I think, you know, the metaphor is, is money, and money is not bad, yeah. you know, but it's the consequence of people's attitude toward money. Yeah. It's like, you don't blame the tool, you need to be aware of the problems that the tool can create, yeah. but it's not the tool per, per se that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. Any yeah. more questions before we go? Anyone? Yeah, yeah you know, uh, I'm Yeah, there's kind of a whole new movement paying attention to some of that. Yeah. And you know, there's uh, just this week I realized that they're talking about like people who they ban and demonetization, you know, and I just assumed that was for kind of political reasons. But even when Google demonetizes someone on YouTube, they do it because, uh, this is what I learned this week, is that they don't want the advertisers to be skittish about people associating that content with yeah. their company. So. I thought it was like an ideological reason, but it's also a commercial reason is that if you, and there is some question as to which, which terms or content gets demonetized, yeah. but it's all shaped by kind of what's, what's not popular, but the way that the winds are blowing, you know, so even the demonetization and the banning can be because they don't want that product, yeah. random advertisers being associated with things that are good enough. And that, that is like... Facebook and Google are mainly advertising companies. And if they lose if they lose that, they have to really start something new. And that's very scary because they they've built empires on advertising. 
And so all these people at the Center for Humane Technology, Zuboff, she's saying we have to figure out how to change the model. Don't get rid of social media. Don't get rid of Google search. Don't get rid of these things. Just shift it somehow so that the interest of advertisers is not the main thing. And that could happen through pay, uh, making the services paid services or, or something like that. Using advertising but not in such a manipulative way. Um, yeah, I think that the advertisers are, are very invested in these, these companies. It is lunchtime. Um, so thank you for coming. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.